Hey, Rod. It's happening. Wim? Wim Hoff? Wim Hoff. Like, is, is that David Hasselhoff's cousin? I don't... They might be long-lost cousins, but I think they're different countries. Mm. Wim's, a, Wim's a Nordic, I believe. Mm. Uh, Wim Hof method, man. Doing uh, breathing exercises, cold therapy. It's like this whole physiological reset type deal. It's supposed to help with the nervous system. Isn't this the like ice-cold bath thing? Yeah. Ice baths. Uh, swims in glacial lakes. Uh, extremely long breath holding. I think my my record right now is two minutes and t- two minutes and thirty seconds holding my breath. Huh. Um. What else? So Hold. interesting that you do all of these things, and I talk to you every single day, and have no idea what the heck's going on. <laughs> I do this one every day. I, I do the breathing before I work out every day. Hmm. So, like, it, like, supercharges your blood with an influx of oxygen. So, it's, like, um, a perp- like it's somewhat, like, hyperventilating on purpose, which hmm. is oxymoronical. And uh, over just a really long inhale and a really short exhale. So, you're just taking in tons of oxygen, tons of oxygen. And you get, like, a euphoric state, basically, because you're... I'm blood doping with oxygen, bro. <laughs> and um, so then that's why you can hold your breath for a long time because there's more oxygen in the stream. And then when you go to work out, your muscles are really oxygenated so you can do more reps. Reps, bro. Hmm. <laughs> it's all about that. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm going to try this next week. I am. I want to see how it goes. All right. I'll send you an instructional tutorial on that, how, how to do it. That would, that would be fantastic. I'm curious. Wim Wim Hof. Wim Hof, Iceman. Welcome to or welcome back to More in Common if this is your first time with us. We are a social enterprise with the goal of exposing the root system. We believe the truth is that we are all nurtured by the same things and we are all dependent upon each other. Our podcast is our social experiment, if you will. We look to provide a comfortable and safe space to have open, honest, and insightful conversations that matter. We've created a map to help you talk to anyone about anything at almost any time. The goal is to supplement this map by providing you with the tools you need to improve your conversation skills so you may become a catalyst for connection and be a conversation leader. Keith, how are you today? I'm doing great. And I always have to remind everybody, moreincommonpod.com. You can find everything you need to know about us, our blogs, our podcasts, how you can support us, because of course this isn't free. And uh, you know, we 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 are you know we have merchandise out there and, and some some other ways to, to help us. And and if you like it, share it. Yeah, it's the best way you can support us. One hundred percent. And don't forget, we did just rebrand our website, Rodney. So it's all new. That's right. They get go out check there, it it's out. It's going to be a surprise. Yeah. Go check it out. Go check it out. So we just had an episode with Mike, Michael Carrillo. Yeah. And uh, it was a pretty heavy episode. You want to you wanna talk to the process behind uh, editing that and how we, some of the decisions we made? It's interesting on that one. I think it was probably the heaviest one that we had to go through i listened to it a few times and i think the first time i listened to it i just lost all interest um in the second half of it just because i couldn't get my mind back into the episode after um, the is it after the burnt after the, mark burnt uh, yes after that after the story um, but we actually had a debate, you know, with our third party editor, um, Anthony McKetty matches uh, about, about keeping that and the, the, the importance of it versus the craft crudeness of it. And, um, and the reality of it and the reality of it. And I think what we ultimately landed on is that, uh, keeping it was more important because as we are about having conversations that matter, it's uh, honest conversations that matter. I, cool. I mean, because part of, of it things. is we we could have easily said, "Eh, he's you know he's talking about this guy doing these things," and you know we don't need to include the explicit material. We can keep that out and, and make it less shocking to listen to. 
but you know part of it we were thinking about like these kids in this situation like they didn't have the choice not to and it's like well if we don't understand this we don't understand how serious this is like if you just use a blanket term like sexual misconduct or sexual abuse it's really hard to tell like what was actually happening and it's really hard easy to separate from it yeah And I think that ultimately leads to the biggest takeaway for me was the the importance of these conversations and the ultimate tie-in to institutional failures Mm. and how similar they are, even if it's a different act, whether it's a police shooting, whether it's sexual assault or Mm -hmm. whatever the case may be, and how the psychology behind them are still very similar and how we don't need to be paranoid and worried, but be aware you know, just be aware of what to do and what to look out for. And I thought uh, Mike gave some really good, good, good advice in that area. He did. Uh, yeah, I think mine is along those lines. Like the the organizations and groups that allow secrecy, like that, just that allowing things to breed like this, and then the conversations about what parents can do and what uh, organizations can do to to try to do be better about these things. Yeah. So. Yeah, so uh, uh, it was a good episode. That was fun. Uh, Keith, who do we have today? Yeah, um, today we have Jeff. Uh, Jeff grew up in Alabama and spent a lot of his early adult life traveling and gaining Bama. new experiences. He now works as a supplier for the Department of Defense and has developed a passion for politics. Um, what do we talk about today? We talk about traveling and how that affected his experience uh, growing up in Bama, which seems to be a recurring theme for us, hmm. <laughs> uh, navigating when to have conversations with various people. Uh, what else? Uh, you know, just how experience has changed his perspective. Um, you know, we talk about nationalism, global oh, yeah. influence of so politics, and really, you know, the, the this is a more of a, a conversation that really demonstrates the the idea of having disagreement and coming from different viewpoints and just navigating a dialogue in a very very friendly civil way and it's a it's a more fun conversation and and uh, you know looking forward to bringing it to you so um, enjoy enjoy our conversation with Jeff and we sat in the lounge at the Hilton downtown Tokyo and basically drank all the beer they had in the uh, in the lounge and the person that came out basically said I know you guys are going to have a ton of questions so just let's just have this conversation ask me whatever you want and the three other guys very similar to me um, and they we all just hit him with a ton of questions and he answered them all and uh it was a really cool conversation. I think it made us become even better friends. A welcome back or welcome to More in Common. Uh, today we have with us Jeff. Uh, Jeff, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. No, this will be fun. Um, so, so before we get into any of the fun stuff, you know, we want to talk about politics. We want to talk about foreign policy. We want to talk about all these things. Like, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, where'd you grow up? Where'd you come from? Where are you now? Uh, yeah, let us get to know you a little bit. Yeah, sure. So born and raised in Alabama, uh, to a fairly conservative household that is pretty much still that way. Um, most of my friends, Went to school in the States, stayed in the States, still there. I, on the other hand, kind of ventured out a little bit. So, we went to Europe for the first time in 2005. My parents took us on ski trips. Uh, As I started my professional career, that took me all over the country and, frankly, the world. So, as I kind of started to see other things uh, and other places and meet new people and, you know, all these things, my... My opinions and the way that I see things started to shift, and I feel like I've come to more of a central point because of those experiences. Um, so, yeah, born and raised in the South. Uh, now I live out West in the mountains. We're big outdoor people. I have conversations about politics with people fairly often when I feel it's not going to be a problem. How do you gauge that? Really, well... You know, some different ways, right? Some people you know that's just not going to be productive. They've got 
right. hard opinions that you're just not going to, you're not going to impact at all. And, you know, you, you, you can see people interact with other people, you know, in a very negative way and just know that that would likely be the outcome of having, trying to have a similar conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think really it's, it's kind of sad these days that you just can't, you know, some people, you, you'll just be completely ostracized from if they think that you or know that you feel a certain way about something, right? Yeah. So, yeah, two, it is. two things you said on navigating the conversation. Um, you said, you, you know, you're not going to impact them. And then how do you gauge? So, you know, Rodney just asked that, but how do you assess that situation? And then what does impact actually mean to you? Yeah, so I guess what I meant by that is, so, I mean, I've had several people through the course of my uh, career and everything else that they've impacted my opinion on something. Mm. So, something that I, if I hear it a different way, or like one good example. So, we, one of my good friends from my last company uh, actually came out of a closet while we were uh, working together. So, I knew him prior and we were very good friends. And he was really the first person that I was very good friends with that was openly gay. And had you asked me what I felt about that, I don't know, in high school maybe, Hmm. I probably would have had a very different opinion after I, before, actually being friends with someone and you actually personalize this, right? And we we remain to be good friends today. So, that's kind of what I meant by impact. Like, that impacted me. That changed my, the way that I felt about that. So, I think, you know, if someone's open-minded and you can say, well, have you thought about it this way? And you can kind of get them to go, you know, actually, I hadn't. That, that makes sense. So, you're, you're saying impact. And I, I think I get where Keith's going. And you're not saying impact like I'm going into every conversation trying to change somebody's mind. No. But not necessarily that. But you are trying to leave an impression or at least have them put a conscious thought on something that you said, whether or not they agree with it is another thing entirely. But Absolutely. Um, I mean, we yeah. could we could come to come away from a very productive conversation and just say, you know what? I get it and I see your viewpoint, but I still feel this way. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. if you go in knowing that they're just so ingrained with an opinion and they're going to potentially view you negatively for having the opposite opinion, that's where I try to kind of stay away from. No, it's it's interesting you say that because, you know, I think about this a lot, this very principle of ultimately why this type of ecosystem matters to me. And I think a lot of it is rooted in a very common common idea is if I'm open to having a conversation with people and a lot of people have impacted the way I think over time. Many may think I'm stubborn, but it really, really doesn't always stick right away. But sometimes you just need a day, right? Maybe two, maybe a month. And these things start to grow or germinate and it ultimately creates a more positive relationship between people when you have the opportunity or allow someone else to, to, impact the way you think about something. Now, how did you respond when that, because you said this is one of your more recent jobs. So, I imagine it's after you'd gone to Europe and traveled and left Alabama. Yeah, this was like 2008. And it was actually a really cool story. It was my first time in Japan. So, I was there with some very good friends, coworkers. And we sat in the lounge at the Hilton downtown Tokyo and basically drank all the beer they had in the, uh, in the lounge. Nice. And the person that came out basically said, I know you guys are going to have a ton of questions. So just, let's just have this conversation. Ask me wow. whatever you want. And these three other guys, very similar to me. Um, and they, we all just hit him with a ton of questions and he answered them all. And, uh, it was a really cool conversation. I think it made us become even better friends. Mm-hmm. And again, that putting that personalization on that issue definitely changed the way I see it. Hmm. That's uh, that you know, not everybody gets that opportunity. And I, I, I give you, you know, given you know, as you mentioned, how you might have been different in the past. Um, that's that's good. Now, going back to that past, because I don't want to gloss over this 
um, the, the fact that you said, I grew up in Alabama. I grew up in the South in a mostly conservative household. So it's interesting that we can really easily just tag you know, some some unconscious biases associated with that, right? We often talk about implicit bias associated with race and gender, but we do that with the South too. So what does growing up in Alabama, what what type of impact did that have on? What was your what was your life, your family life? What what how did that frame your early developmental years? Yeah, sure. So you know, I'm from Birmingham, so I'm not like from the country or anything. Uh so we it's not quite as southern as, you know, a lot of areas of Alabama. Uh, but True. we, so, you know, we, we just, you know, frankly, we didn't have many, I was around mostly white people. And, you know, I had a, a friend that was black that we wrestled together and that's cool. I never had a problem with anything there, but it, you know, we grew up around white people. So seeing, you know, certainly when we moved to Chicago, you see a whole different spectrum of people, right? And that definitely helped me grow as well, meeting people from all different backgrounds, places, nationalities, whatever. But, you know, I was in a fairly contained environment. And I mm-hmm. think that that kind of makes you feel ways about things just due to the nature of the environment, right? But again, when I started moving around, traveling, doing all these things, it really helped me kind of become who I am today by being friends and acquaintances with all these people from all over the place, which I'm, you know, definitely glad that that happened. Do you, do you feel a pull to, to thinking about things like, you know, when you're with family, like what's that like now, right? When you go back home and you have family conversations about (laughs) whatever it may be. They're very conservative, very red. Uh, Fox News is on almost all the time. It's, uh, and, and this, this is one of the things that I think has driven us so in such a bad direction because my, as much as I love them, my parents are a good example of they watch Fox News, they get one opinion on all these different things and they just rattle those back, right? And I've had conversations with my mom where I'm like, mom, you should really, read this or watch this and you'll see this from a different angle. But when you, you only watch Fox news or you only watch MSNBC or you only listen to this show, whatever, and you're just reinforcing opinions. I think that's what drives people so far in this ditch that, but that's, that's what it's like back home is, you know, it's very family oriented. Everyone has a bunch of kids and there's, dogs and animals and kids and people running around all the time. It's kind of crazy. We were actually there last weekend. Uh, so that's, that's kind of home. Which is, I, I kind of identify with coming from Indiana um, and actually family in Birmingham. But even the story you gave about your friend coming out, like m- the way I felt about homosexuality all the way even up through college to now, completely different. Yep. That, like, that, that was and, our first serious conversation. Was it that or religion? Uh, I thought it was like... I'm sure we <laughs> talked about religion a lot, but that was the first... We did talk about religion most, all the time. <laughs> the most productive one we had, yeah. 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 Um, um, so, I, I definitely get that, yeah. So, how do you... Like, let's take take this on the theme of, of engaging in dialogue, right? Like, how... Do you engage your family? Do you avoid it? Do you engage it? Like, what's the experience like as far as... As far as a conversation goes back home. Yeah, I mean, kind of depending on who in the family we're talking about. My mom tends to be a little bit more open-minded. So, I've had several conversations with mom where she goes in with one opinion. I explain it, I don't know if I'd say better, but at least more holistically. And then she comes away and says, yeah, you know, that actually, that makes sense. I could see that. So, we've had several good conversations like that. And, you know, I, I don't... I'm not fearful of expressing, you know, a potentially different opinion with them. But what, where that conversation ends just kind of varies by who I'm talking to. Um, How do they approach it? Yeah, I mean, they really don't talk politics all that much. So, there's... See, and this is... That's something my dad and I talk about a lot. You know, it's, I, I'm assuming they have the... You can talk, we can talk about anything except for politics and <laughs> politics religion, and religion, like, right? <laughs> and rather, yeah. And 
in like I get it. I to a degree I get it and I understand it, but I think um I think it's led to a lot of the issues that we have in our society now. And cuz there's almost this like when somebody comes into your home, you're welcoming into your home, like hey, you can eat anything, you can have something to drink, whatever, we'll take care of you. But when we're sitting around this like when we're, you're in this house, we don't talk about politics, we don't talk about religion. And it's basically mm-hmm. saying like Whatever you think on important topics doesn't matter here because, like, in my house, like, what I think is all, all that matters. And it's kind of a it's – a, it's a ludicrous thing to uh, – not only to believe but to promote, to say that, like, what I believe is the only thing that matters uh, here all the time. And, it, and, it, and it's not actually what – it's not what anybody says. It's just kind of underlying. It's just laying under there. And it's the um, assumption that what you say is going to be different than what I believe. So, why don't we just right. avoid it altogether? <laughs> right. Play it safe. Right? Yeah. Like, let's just be – yeah. Because because if you say something that I don't agree with, then we can't be friends anymore. Like, or you can't stay here because, heaven forbid, I talk to somebody that has a different opinion. And uh, something we should probably point out, like – Although you're not, you won't identify with the r- straight red line of thought, and you're thinking it's far more nuanced than that. You you wouldn't call yourself a Democrat or blue either, would you? I, yeah. I wouldn't. If I had to define it, I'd probably say I'm just a little bit right of center. Um, fiscal responsibility of the country is very important to me. But I could care less if you're gay and want to get married. Or, you know, so I, I think a lot of people come down that way where it's, you know, very conservative on some things and liberal on, on others and not, you know, hard to find as I'm conservative, I'm going to vote straight ticket Republican or straight ticket Democrat. I think more people are kind of migrating to that center, but it, it's tough, right? In our two-party system and all these things that just prevent people like us from getting someone to represent us, right? Yeah. Well, we actually agree with you because that's part of why we started this. We figured there's more people like us that are, you know, I, I would say I'm more middle, middle leftish, keys further middle left, you're middle right. Like we think that's more common than hard right, hard left. Mm-hmm. I just listened to a um, podcast that was profiling a, uh, a not a, a congressional candidate, female candidate, and. Oh, one of the competitive counties in California uh, for the primaries. And she is a Democratic candidate that is more middle. And the, the you know, dem- the the party itself asked her to drop out of the race um, because she doesn't represent all of what the party represents and to the point of the two-party system, which which I struggle with significantly um, because I don't agree with everything of either. Um, I, I feel like we end up having to, you know, settle all too often for, for people that just represent a little bit more than the other one uh, of what we think versus actually having a competitive landscape of people who represent you know, a little bit more of, of what we want them to versus what the party says they should represent. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was just going to say, you know, take the last election as a perfect example. I mean, I told Rodney, I voted for Gary Johnson and I, I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. yeah. So I, I learned something like you told me why you voted for him. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. What I told Rodney was I voted for him for a very, maybe two very specific reasons. One, I didn't like Trump or Hillary. But two, if he got enough percentage of the votes, then they would get a seat in the debate in the next election, which Mm -hmm. I think would be a very positive step. Because I think if people actually knew Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, they would have done much better. Yeah. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's a a really interesting take on it versus thinking I'm throwing my vote away. So, I got I have to vote for one of the major parties. Otherwise, I'm just, you know, throwing my vote away. You're, you're, the actual reason for voting for that person is for future thinking of representation. So, you said you left um, Alabama. Um, what made you leave? And ultimately, what led you to your interest in politics? So, I left to take a job where they wanted me either in. Minneapolis, St. Louis, or Chicago. And I visited Chicago, love Chicago, so I picked Chicago. 
I was covering accounts all through the Midwest. It was a central point. And we stayed there for 12 years. Um, what got me interested in politics? Actually, I remember very distinctly. So I've been doing DOD contractor work for 10 years now. And at the time, or towards the beginning, I was covering the F-22 program. So we did a lot of business with the F-22 program. And then the then DOD secretary, uh, Robert Gates, killed that program. We don't build F-22s anymore. And that business basically completely went away. And I had never been interested in politics before, but I realized that, wow, this is actually impacting me personally. And, you know, who we elect and what we do within the government is a big impact on me. And uh, that kind of got me started. And then I told Rodney, I found a, um, I'll give him a little plug, the Michael Spraconish program on Sirius. So he's, as he, he's very similar to me. I agree with him on most things. And I just stumbled across that program on Sirius. And that kind of, those two things sort of led me into getting interested in it. F-22 is the Raptor? That's it. Yeah. Yep. We were originally supposed to build uh, like 2,000 of those, and we ultimately built like 130. Yeah, there's not many in production or in circulation now. Do you focus more on national or local politics, or do you do both? Definitely more national. Um, yeah. You know, having just moved here full-time last year, I was with some guys earlier at the new house, and they were like, oh, yeah, so-and-so is running for Senate. He's the ex-mayor's son or something and i i don't even know who these people are so. <laughs> yeah yeah i'm i'm you know it's funny i've always focused more on national i think it's probably accessibility um and i too have moved around a lot and been in multiple different places um so you know the national anchor is pretty pretty easy to gravitate to but i think now that i've established roots here in cleveland i'm starting to pay more attention to to the local politics you know so it's it's just a a transition yeah i probably will now you know living in a small town you know in chicago pol yeah. local politics didn't really impact me right totally. you know, us personally so yeah but now living in a small town i actually i didn't get to meet but i know friends of the mayor now and, you know, what the mayor does with this small town has a lot more impact on us personally than living in Chicago. So, I probably will. Right. Sure. Yeah. What, um... Well, even even big town like LA, like, I, I've actually gotten very uh, interested in local. Um, but I, I'm very much interested in local politics, especially trying to understand um, councilman lines. And, and um, right now, I'm really focused on, like, transport, water, air... Uh, waste and how that's routed and paid for throughout the city because they have a lot of power and they and then it like it's just water and air on the surface but they really control a lot more than that and they have huge budgets and so trying to understand like where that money's going and who's who's controlling like just trying to understand it because i don't know if i can ever affect it but i'm very curious because um it seems to make a big big difference um so you go going back to covering the f-22 program and losing that from a guy who's traveled around like what 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 is your most pressing um political interest that that you spend a lot of time caring about these days uh as i mentioned a lot of foreign affairs so you know i'm a little bit closer to what we're doing from a global standpoint than most especially from a military standpoint and I think, I think we've overstretched ourselves in many areas. And I think we need to rethink when we get engaged somewhere and when we don't or containing those efforts. And I just think we've, we're way, we're spread way too thin. And I, especially given where we when, are financially, right? So when you say overstretched, is that mainly what you're talking about financially or are you talking about manpower? Are you talking about ethically, morally? Like, where, did, what is your, Take yeah, no, I mean, well, fiscally kind of ties into that, right? Because obviously it costs money for us to go somewhere, to establish a base somewhere, to deploy troops somewhere, whatever. But really more our presence in different areas of the world. I just think we're engaged in way too many places and for way too long. When you say engaged, what do you mean? Do you mean military base presence? For Correct. Regional, regional protection regardless? Like, 
you know, do, do you think we're overstretched by having a military presence in South Korea as a deterrent for North Korea military action on South Korea, like that type of thing? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Like, and do you think that's universal to every military base or do you think there's still opportunity for us to maintain that military presence globally in some areas? No, there's still, I think there still is. And I, I definitely think it still makes sense for us to do that when we need to. Uh, as far as, I definitely wouldn't make that a general statement. I don't think that, you know, we're just either supposed to be somewhere else or we're not. I would say South Korea is its own discussion, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, whatever. I think that they're all Philippines, unique. like Sure. Yeah. yeah. Name the country almost. Hey, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show thus far. We just want to take a quick break to talk about Table Talk, one of our villagers. Keith, who's Table Talk? Uh, Table Talk, uh, it's an organization that's very like-minded to what we're trying to accomplish. They create spaces and avenues for conversation on campuses outside of the classroom that did not previously exist. You know, we talk about this a lot. Today's world is often segmented into echo chambers of like-minded individuals. Well, Table Talk is trying to do what we're trying to do by reversing that culture and helping people make meaningful connections outside of their typical groups. Magic. So thanks for letting us uh, do a quick intro to Table Talk uh, and we'll go back to the conversation. How do you, taking that, because you know, I certainly have some thoughts there, but I want to take that a step further. How do you feel then about our position in the world as a, as a global ecosystem today and what we're doing to be a part of that, like whether it's military, whether it's economics or whatever the case may be, like what, what, what's your position there? You know, honestly, I think it's, I don't know that we necessarily need to impact as many things as we think we do. You know, so we, we tell countries they can or can't have nuclear weapons when we have a ton our own, right? So, I think it's a little hypocritical of us sometimes to say, we, we need to dictate who your leader should be, what weapons capability you have, what, you know, we, we want to have all this stuff ourselves, but we're going to tell you you can't. You know, that sort of thing, I think we need to kind of reel in a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Why, um, um, the, the nuclear one, well, there's, and there's a lot of examples like that, like where the hypocrisy exists and then somebody in, on the other side of that argument would say well we're trying to make sure the world's safe and make sure we know where the stockpiles of nuclear weapons are and who has what how would you what would you say to that yeah i mean i definitely think we need to play a role on some level but if i picture myself as a as a citizen of another country that wants to obtain those weapons and then you have the us saying you know Picture us. Think if some foreign power was telling us what we could or couldn't do. I think that would be... And that's where I think a lot of people that dislike the United States come from. You know, like you're over yeah. here dictating what we do and don't, don't do, who our leaders are, all these things. Like, who are you to tell us what we should be doing? I think um, what's, what's interesting about that, because I would agree... Um, in the sense that one financially, you know, I, I understand our need to invest in or our desire in some cases to invest in military spending, but also our need, um, as a, as a military action deterrent. Um, but, you know, prior to world war II, um, there were almost twice as many dictators in the world as there are today. And the reason, a lot of the reason for that reduction is our, our leadership in democracy or democratic influence around the world. However, the, the ecosystem that's been built with the UN and, you know, national allies and the growth of democracy around the world um, has created a global ecosystem of leadership that I don't think necessarily means the U.S. is the leader. Cause you actually asked this question coming into, into the conversation. What is, what is our place as the leader? I think we are a part of that leadership. I think we need to play a part in that leadership of collective action because you know 
to to ensure that people around the world, all 7.4 billion of them, um, have opportunity to just live a life that's not built built on you know bombs and and hunger and you know a lack of water and being able to be a part of leadership that builds those those structures and destructs the the institutions that are that are set out to oppress people like in North Korea um, or in Syria or in Myanmar or you know name it Venezuela right though we do have the tendency to invest in where the return is um, and I just don't think that's necessarily a, a singular action that we should have right no and I think like I said I think that, you know this obviously ties back into the financial conversation you know I think we'd totally. be having a very different conversation if we had a large budget surplus, right? If we had stockpiled all this money, then we can argue about where we need to spend that, who we're going to help, whatever. In our current situation, we're just borrowing money and adding to the debt to do those things, right? So, I think that just needs to be more of the conversation than it typically is to say, you know, can we afford this? You know, yeah, there are horrible places all over the world, but we can only do so much, right? And right now we're freaking broke. So you asked the take a kind of a bit of a veer here because you asked the question um, about the the concept of nationalism um, and using using the word. So so you know what are what are your sentiments? What are your thoughts around nationalism? You know, I mean, I think if you if you hear the prime minister of Japan or whatever say look, we can do all these things and help people around the world as much as we can. But my first job is to protect the Japanese citizens, to protect you, to protect our homeland. So, I put Japan first, or I put Germany first, or I put whatever. And that, to me at least, that sounds totally normal. But then when you say, I want to put America first, then it takes on this whole sort of, I don't know, it, it's it's almost you know, now you're being selfish or you're a nationalist or you're whatever. And I'm not saying I want to be an isolationist or anything, but I definitely think, I think you should be, I think you should put our country first. And I don't think should that... Should we define nationalism real quick? Like, how would you do... Like, let's de- what's the definition of it? Loyalty and devotion to a nation. A sense of national consciousness. Exalting exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations or supranational groups. So, I don't think um, that's the definition most people are working off of. And I wouldn't necessarily say as opposed to, I would say as a priority, not necessarily one or the other, but this comes first. And I think that's the... Yeah, so that's the Merriam-Webster definition of nationalism um, that ultimately creates that sentiment of that or that connotation that that causes us to think, oh, you're a nationalist, right? It's and in the same way, it's called you know the globalist term is has been you know vilified in in a way that you know if you say oh you're a globalist, you know someone can look at you. But I think you nailed it, Jeff, when you said isolationist, right? Because I would agree with you. I I mean, we have a lot of issues at home. We have an increasing poverty rate. We have millions of children who are, are go hungry every single day. Um, we have, you know, a, a, an ever increasing gap of income and inequality in this country um, that that leave 43 percent of our country below the poverty line and you know we do have that sentiment of well there are other countries that you know venezuela is a good one good example that that it just completely demolished and destroyed and people don't have food let alone just being hungry and there are places in africa where you can't even get water um and they have no institution or infrastructure to, to help them in doing that. So, what do I put a priority on? And some people, you know, there's that argument. Hey, why, it's worse somewhere else. Rodney uses the analogy, the house is on fire. But at the same time, our house is starting to burn too. And, right. and I would agree with you, like... 
there is a there we should all take pride in helping our neighbors helping our communities helping our ecosystem and thus promoting um, our country and, and the people that surround us because they, they, they have challenges too, but not being isolationist about it and saying, we're the only ones that matter. Others do exist, but I have to take care of my kids first before I yep. take care of your kids. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where, you know, if you're dealing with a fixed amount of money and you're, you, you can either fix something here or we can use it for foreign aid for Venezuela or some country in Africa or whatever. That's a tough choice, right? But yeah, yeah. It was recently brought to my attention that uh, you know, although a lot of tech companies do a lot of good uh, trying to spread technology in Africa, which is awesome. Uh, if you look at rural, the rural U.S., the connectivity rates of um, internet connectivity rates of rural U.S. is it's abysmal. Ten percent. Ten percent. I just I'm just emphasize ten percent of the United States population that represents thirty million people, right? Do not have internet access. Mm-hmm. Now, is that they are not capable because of where they live? Like there is none there, Correct. or they don't? There is no internet going to where they live. Which is one of the promises of five G. Let's get. And this is this is uh-huh. this is uh, something I learned <laughs> internal to our to our, the company that we work in, talking to some of our community organizers at our company. Ten percent. Yeah. yeah, it's awful. And and it's it's like man, it it you know, there's the the I don't know if you've heard the saying. Um, um it's hard to pour from an empty cup. I've never heard this. Like if, so so it means. Uh, so you can't pour you you can't serve from an empty cup. So if the so the, if the cup is you and you're empty, you're not taking care of yourself. You're not getting sleep. You need you're not taking you care of your nutrition. You're not taking care of your body. All that kind of stuff. How can you take care of other people? You know how how can the guy with no money help everybody else with their money issues? Right. Um, or gal with money no money. Uh, or as my favorite poet Jay Z once said. How can I help the poor if I'm one of them? It's an interesting comment. Um, but the, <laughs> the, the, it, I mean, I, yeah. I look at it like how can, and, and then I think the nuance on it gets a little bit stranger or it, like when you look at how we choose where we help in the world, like air quote help in the world, like, who are we helping? Are we trying to help them or are we trying to help us? And then who here are we actually trying to help versus just like, why don't we just, why don't we do something about this homeless problem or crumbling infrastructure? <laughs> so, Jeff, I'm curious to to get your thoughts on what do you think contributes to that stigmatism stigmatism no stigma that's an i yeah an astigmatism (laughs) is an i think the the stigma associated with nationalism i i think it's the way it's thrown out in politics where it trying to make this with a negative spin right like you say this that means you're probably an isolationist or you're it's like you're they're trying to say you're selfish almost is kind of the way i hear it they're like well these poor people over here or this horrible situation there, you don't care about any of that. And that's not my opinion. Uh, but I think, I think that's what gets thrown out or why that's got such a negative connotation is because it gets associated with, well, you're just, you're selfish. You don't care about these poor people or whatever. You just want to stay here and kind of put blinders on when that, again, that's not the way I feel. I just think it's a conversation that needs to be had. Yeah. So it's 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 that the words have been politi- overly politicized and just not even overly politicized. They just used for specific talking yes. points. So they're associated like they're used in certain turns of phrase to elicit an emotion, and they do that versus looking at the definition, like the definition of globalism, the operation or planning of economic and foreign policy on global on a global basis. Like that's not how it's typically referred exactly. to exactly. No, it's um, and I think what ends up happening 
So I think there's a root cause. I think you, you, from my perspective, I think you nailed it. And the other, the other contributing factor is this idea that, you know, we've talked about this before meritocracy in the United States and Western culture. We, we honestly believe in one another that you write your own ticket. Right. And I've, I've absolutely pulled myself up from the bootstraps with no help from anybody, as Mitt Romney said in his 2008 <laughs> campaign or 2012. Donald, Donald J. Donald J. says he did too. Because he only had a measly million dollars. He had a measly, measly one dollar yeah. check from his pops. Yeah. So, so we pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps. Thus, everybody should be able to do that. So if you're poor in this country, it's your fault. Right. And I don't think that's a universal current position, but I do think there's a historical position in that mindset. And I think it's starting to break down a little bit, but that ultimately leads to the utilization of these terms of nationalism and globalism at a political scale. And when we create that dichotomy, thus, if you are one, you are not the other. And if you are the other, you are not one. Therefore, hey, we've got this this balance and oh, vote for me because I'm a nationalist or vote for me because I'm a globalist. And it's like, wait a second, what happened to the nuance in that conversation? Right. And there's a lot. <laughs> right. There, there's a I mean, cause ton, like, right? Because how can, I mean, how could you make a decision? Like, how could you make a decision about something here without considering the global picture, especially when most of the goods we get are probably from somewhere else? Like, you could how do you separate the two but i mean you take a look at the tariffs right and if you think about the the idea of the terrorist from a nationalist perspective it's going to bring jobs back right it's going to be economic back or the economy back but it's also going to rise raise prices right capitalism is of you're talking you're talking about the steel tariffs the steer, yeah. whatever tariff you want to name right now you're, i mean you're talking about the specific them. ones that yeah, are going well, on like well, right yeah, now that, right now as yeah. of june 1st when we're recording this episode um you know, when you think about it that way, you think about cheap labor and bringing labor back into the United States. Capitalism is anti-nationalism. Be, they, they, no, capitalism is pro-making money. Exactly. So, to make money, sometimes you want to go where the cheapest labor is, right? Um, to, to, to make money, you want to go to where the cheapest product is. It doesn't necessarily promote... Or you can get the product made the most cheaply. And it doesn't necessarily promote the national... Um, first, you know, so there has to be when you think about it, that nuanced conversation to say, I totally agree with, you know, focusing on my family, but I may need to go to your house to get milk. Sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like the, yeah, you could, you could make the decision as a business owner, someone that builds homes that, okay, I'm going to pay a little more to get my lumber from in-state as opposed to from Canada or wherever. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, simpl it's as simplistic to say that I can put a tariff on that Canadian lumber, therefore I'm going to force that business owner to buy from their home state. I I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's what Trump is... Well, because it's not, it's not that linear, right. unfortunately. And I think that's the way Trump's selling it because... Probably those people at that local lumber yard voted for Trump, right? <laughs> so, so on that train of thought, like in the analogy, um, being center right as a self-defined middle right thinker, um, what is your position on the very, very core of of red and blue, and that's a decentralized state-driven governments? versus versus a federal government. So I'm curious to get your perspective. So basically, where do I think that line should be drawn? And are we? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I definitely think you should be able to do I mean, in the grand scheme, I think it's I think we have the right structure in place. Like you should be able to make decisions locally. Because you're because of the, the nature of your state, whatever that is. Uh, but at the same time, a federal check, like, okay, we're gonna let you do things up to a certain point. And uh, so, I think that general stance is the correct one. Now, we're in a little bit of a weird place, right? Where states are doing things that fly in the face of federal law. And I don't agree with that. Uh, but, but no, like I said, in general, I think we've got it right. I think we can definitely fix things. But yeah, I think you should be able to do some things locally as long as they're, you know, as long as they make sense and it's not violating people's rights or... 
whatever where where do you think where do you think that line is because i think this is where that the nuance really comes in this conversation i mean i think i am libertarian on a decent amount of things you know i could care less if you smoke pot or Mm -hmm. whatever uh military spending you know being in this business this might sound odd but i think we could definitely pull that in some you know you look at our technology is so far beyond the capability of pretty much everyone else in the world. You know, so not to get too deep on this, but we talked about the F-22. The F-22 is supposed to replace the F-15. We've been flying the F-15 since the 70s and have never lost one in combat. Not one. So do we really need an aircraft that's 10 times better than that now at a cost of $36 million a plane? Maybe not. Uh, So... Yeah, I mean, I think we could do that more intelligently. And again, going back to the, on the global stage, do we need to be spent doing all this military spending in all these other places, right? I mean, I think that probably puts me a little bit in the libertarian column, but. Yeah, no. I, so, so where do you think at the federal level, the line's drawn? Like, wh- where, how much reach do you think the federal government should have on state government? kind of libertarian, not not much more beyond how they're going to help states, right? Like, obviously, states rely on federal funding. Mm-hmm. So, that that's a big part of a state's budget. Um, how much can a state interfere or the federal government interfere with what a state wants to do? I don't think it should do much more than just that check, right? As long as you're below this bar, then you kind of do whatever you guys think makes sense. And I'll add to that because I, I actually follow that line of thinking to a degree. I would say the line has to do with health and well-being of citizens within the states, like making sure the states are keeping up on like basic air quality, stuff like that. Stuff like is he? Yeah. Well, but yeah. So, let's say yes on, on FDA, air quality, um, EPA, water quality, um, like but beyond that, like, can the state have weed legal? Like, I don't think that's a federal conversation. And I and I say that personally because I think that we have a hard time electing one person to run this country. Like, the majority vote thing is like electoral college majority majority population. Like, that's that's hard enough. But like coming to a national decision on like how we're gonna run Iowa. Mm-hmm or montana like it doesn't make sense to me i don't understand why the people like i think that the people that live in that state should be able to make the majority of the decisions for the state they live yeah in. agree um that's that's where i fall on it yeah i i think um i think there is a line uh, for sure i think the line falls on the treatment of the citizens within that state if the state falls short on, let's say, water quality and there's lead in the water because they accepted some funding from some big chemical waste plant that ultimately impacts and they they let it go unregulated, federal government should should have imposition of opportunity within that circumstance. Or if, hey, let's let's uh, let's let's take Texas and Texas says no we we want we want slavery back. Yeah yeah I'm going to draw a line there right I think the federal government should step in and say nope because I don't think it's fair necessarily to to oblige this mindset that well if you don't want to be here leave right it's if if it were that simple and if family didn't matter to anybody ever in the history of time, then that would be a really simple formula. Well, if you don't want to be here, leave. Um, and I think it's it's the equality of citizen treatment across the board. Now you go down a step below that line and saying, you know, should should weed be legal? Should drugs be legal? Should all of these things, you know, you get into the nuances of those? I do think states should reserve the right. And at that point, you you do make the decision not to live there or to live there or find an opportunity to move out, um, you know. It, it's not always easy, but you know sometimes it's it's it, it, it we do have to take a citizen accountability to to what we support and where we where we want to be. 
which ultimately impacts the broader ecosystem. Like if you, you know, just take the example of car production, um, California influenced national regulations on cars um, because car car manufacturers didn't want to have two standards. And California and its citizens said, nope, this is what we want. And so, well, the manufacturers made the decision to make that for everybody else. Um, and I think there's a, a lot of those those little things throughout the process. Yeah, and I totally agree with you, Keith, on the weed front. I think states should have that right. I do very much disagree with the fact that we have states flying in the face of federal law making that decision because I think that's a slippery slope. Mm. And you, you said the example of Texas brings back slavery. Well, if, you, if you're making the argument today that California should be able to violate federal law by legalizing marijuana, which again, I think is, is totally fine with me, up until the point where you're violating federal law. So, we should change that federal law and not just allow states to kind of go rogue, right? Because who knows what the next rogue state's going to be and what they try to do and say, well, you, you're fine with them legalizing pot, which is against federal law. So, why can't we do this crazy thing on the same basis, right? It's And then my question is, like, why do we have a federal law? Because of, you know... Prison, <laughs> prison control that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole another conversation yeah. i think <laughs> but i i think i mean you bring up a good point right and this is actually really really relevant uh related to a very sensitive topic these days in the utilization of sanctuary cities right absolutely San sanctuary cities violates federal law and and at the end of the day there we are a land of laws Right. That's what keeps our democracy together. We may not always agree with those laws and sometimes changing those laws takes a really, really long time or some very, very courageous people. Um, and morally, you may be opposed to something. And this is something Rodney and I have talked about the difference between morality and legality. In some cases, there is a difference. And just because it's morally reprehensible, doesn't mean you have the right to violate it legally, but we have an opportunity to change that legal law, right? And you go through the proper channels to do it um, versus having rogue states, because then are we the United States of America anymore? Or are we separate countries that border each other and ultimately could go to war with each other? Right. Hmm. Yeah, it's because it's funny you wrote that in the in in when we first um, were trying to to prepare to have the conversation around the utilization of sanctuary cities in mm -hmm. immigration. And at first, I'm thinking, and even now, it's like, no. I mean, if a state wants to have sanctuary cities, they should because I do believe in our immigration, like the foundational principle of immigration in our country. But especially if you're coming from, you know. If you're if you're if you're looking for asylum um, based on the living conditions from where you come, but at the same time, to your point, like I think we need to have a better ecosystem that accommodates the potential, but you know you shouldn't have states violating those those federal laws, even if you disagree with who's in. That's what the courts are there to do. The courts are there to challenge, and you go through the proper legal channels. Absolutely, and yeah, you. You know, you brought up the point of sanctuary cities and all these things. And yeah, I think a lot of these things happen because laws are very difficult to change. But I don't think that is a justification for just violating the law. You know, we sh it may be difficult. It may take a few years or whatever, but make people take a position on them and then elect people that will do the right thing. And we all know that's difficult, but that's the way it's supposed to work. And if it doesn't work that way... We're just setting ourselves up for bad things down the road, right? Yeah, I mean, the way you teed that up was actually pretty, I'm thinking about that right now, like just legal precedent, right? Like, all right, well, if Texas wanted to bring back slavery and they're like, and everybody's like, nah, you can't do that. That's violating federal law. And then they say, well, well I can give you 28 states that are violating federal laws on weed or on sanctuary cities or on xyz exactly so the pre precedent gets all um confounded or confused 
which begs the question, why in that why is why is government so inefficient? Like why is our government so inefficient? Do you have any do you have any thoughts on that, Jeff, being that you work with government spending institutions <laughs> in particular? I see crazy things almost daily. Uh try to come up with an example that won't get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> so, I'll, I'll be a little vague here, but I think I can get the point across. I had a customer, Amy and I were just talking about this the other day, so it's kind of top of mind, but had a customer that had, and this happens a lot within DOD, uh, and I probably the government in general, but definitely within DOD, you get money, and if you Department don't spend defense. that money, then it goes away. So, people will scramble around and either buy stuff they don't need or buy a lot more of something than they actually need. So, I had a customer that needed X amount of product. They had funding for twice that amount. So, they spent it all and literally put a whole bunch of gear in a closet for two years. And then ultimately scrapped it all. That happens every oh day. So, it's it's very aggravating. So, where... <laughs> Where's that coming from, though? Like, where, where, why, why is it, why is it that organizations, government, U.S. government organizations are, why is that allowed to happen? Like, what's the thing that's going on behind the scenes that says, like, this is a good rule and we're going to continue working like this, even though we know that this is happening with spending? Like, what, what is going on? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just the, the structure that's been in place for so long, I, I don't even know where you began to change that. But someone should be able to look at those scenarios and say, this is ridiculous, guys. You needed half of this, so we're going to give you the money for the stuff you legitimately need, and that's it. And then we're going to use the rest of it for something else we need, right? But I, I don't know where you even start to change that. But it's you hear people talk about waste I and spending and government, but I... I don't know. I want to go back to an earlier point. Um, there's a couple of things I kind of want to tie in full circle because we have kind of gone from issue to issue and really dug in. But you had you had said uh, back when it comes to gauging whether or not you can engage, you know, be engage somebody in a conversation, and I'm wondering a little bit more now. How often, if you were to sit across from somebody, or if this actually happens, to say, well, I grew up in Alabama, you know, um, I work with the DOD, um, and I do these things that, they, this is who I am. Do you find it harder for people to be willing to engage? Um, do, and, and how do you navigate that? Because those are instant Stigmas. People are going to make assumptions based on about, those. About where you stand and thus may not be willing to engage because they're afraid to have that conversation with you. He's from Bama. He works with, <laughs> he works with the DOD. I know exactly I know this guy, right. Uh, yeah. You know, not that often, to be honest. Um, I A lot of times when I get in these conversations, we just stumble into it. And Rodney and I kind of did that. You know, I didn't, mm -hmm. That's how we, I didn't yeah. intend to talk about politics with Rodney, but I can't remember how it initially came up, but it was like, oh, wow, this is actually seems like it's going to be a you know, pleasant conversation. Obviously, no Rodney well, so that's fine. Um, but it, it really, for me, it happens accidentally more often than anything else. I mean, we were, I had a good friend over, I don't know, this is like two months ago, and we we're just like having a couple of beers at the house, whatever, and somehow the kneeling thing came up. And uh, mm. he's very passionate about them doing that. I... I'm not nearly like a lot of people, but I, it's a little, I'm not super comfortable with it. I'll just say that way. And we ended up having, I don't know, 30 minute conversation about it. And he is vehemently opposed to what some of the things that I thought at the end of it, we were laughing and it's fine. Now I know that I can have conversations with him about other stuff because we've sort of hashed it out. Right. And now we, we do talk about politics a lot and, yeah, you know, frankly, a lot of times people get curious when they're like, oh, what do you do for the government? And then it's like, you know, I heard something about this in the military. Is that true or whatever? Sometimes that actually leads into conversations. Uh, but 
Yeah, I mean, back to the question, I don't really get too many people, at least to my face, that, <laughs> you know, seem like they've formed a really hardened opinion about me based on this bullet list of facts, right? Yeah. I want to throw out something real quick because earlier you talked about um, traveling, going to Europe and how it changed, helped formed perspectives and change. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Mark Twain. Uh, it says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need to find it, need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And I think, I think of my own experience, like getting out of Indianapolis, going to West Lafayette, going to Chicago, coming to L.A., uh, in between there and college, like at the end of my college, I got to go to Europe. And I think if, I think I, I heard somebody say, they're like, what what advice would you give to college students pursue, pursuing careers in the quote unquote real world? And the response from the person being asked was, I would recommend that they travel out, like outside of the United States, preferably to someplace where they don't speak the language, but like just Getting somewhere where it's a different culture and they have to see different and experience different foods and people driving on different sides of the road and just like um, to understand that like the cultural constructs that we understand are just cultural constructs that we've made here. The rest of the world doesn't necessarily adhere to them and it just broadens your view. So, 100% agree. And so, Jeff, you know, we have to wrap up here as we're, we're coming up on time, but you know, Thank you for for joining us and engaging and in, in representing and being a part of what we're trying to do. And I, I just really appreciate you joining us and having this conversation. And and uh, just you know, thank you. No, no, I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate the invitation. 